0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. I have a very special guest with me today, Tim Ferriss. He's our chief operating op- officer. He's also a managing partner of NETS training. Um, we're going to be talking about EMS systems today and operations, something that he's really passionate about. He's kind of been all over the country and he knows a lot about this stuff. So we're really excited to have him here in our very high quality studio. Today's location is a blueberry farm for all of you guys that are looking for blueberries make sure that you contact Tim during the blueberry season. He knows where the best, freshest blueberries are. Welcome, Tim.
1: Thanks for that plug. I'm sure Holly will appreciate that.
0: Yeah, you got it. Absolutely. So what we always do with our guests and our listeners here um, is if you just take a moment and just let them know kind of how you got into EMS, a little bit about your background and how did we get where you are today and what are you doing now?
1: Uh, So my background is uh, I grew up in the volunteer fire service. My father and grandfather are both uh, volunteer firefighters and It uh, quickly grew into a passion of mine. I originally got into EMS to get into the career fire service and found that I I enjoyed it. And it was something that I excelled in marginally. And uh, like you said, I've been able to uh, take this career kind of all over the country, sometimes not not at my own will. And uh, I've been in Burlington for the last 14 plus years and currently still loving it.
0: Perfect. Sounds like a dream come true. And you've been in education for a while, too. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So I'm one of the founding partners here at NETS. And, you know, we've been teaching CPR, EMT classes, AMT classes for
0: coming up on 10 years. Perfect. And... We actually, the topic that we're talking about today is going to be operations and systems. And this is one of the things I think that gets glanced over in some programs. We try to do a good job here at NETS, but I know, um, you know, when I went through other programs, the systems piece is, you know, a few chapters in the beginning of the book, a few chapters in the end of the book, and it talks about ambulance regulations and it talks about, you know, how to decide which ambulance service you're going to work for and how they respond to different emergency calls. And it is something that I saw on all of my NREMT tests. I saw it on my EMT exam, I saw it on my A exam, and I definitely saw a lot of it on my paramedic exam. So I'm really hoping that the folks that are listening today, if you're going to be taking an NREMT exam or you're going to be progressing up through the different levels of EMS, definitely try to pay attention to this because this is something that you will see in testing. Would you say that's pretty fair?
1: Yeah, you'll definitely see questions revolving around uh, transport decisions and destinations. I don't know if there'll be so many questions on the different types of EMS systems, but I think it's still you know good knowledge to have, especially once you get into the job market and are seeking agencies to work for understanding how they operate and uh, the ins and outs of well exactly that, their operations.
0: Yeah, and there can be a pretty dramatic difference between these different systems. So it probably would be a good thing to know what you're interested in. That way, when you go to apply for those jobs, you're getting into something that's going to be a good fit for you.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, before we really start getting into the systems, you know, we're going to be discussing... The different types of EMS systems out there we are probably going to talk some pros or cons to each one. And uh, before anybody gets upset with anything I have to say or you have to say, let me put it this way, is that the best EMS system out there is the one that works best for the municipality that you either work for, reside in, or play in. I mean, that's, that's hands down it. You know, what works for one community might not work for another.
0: Yeah, and I remember when we were going through paramedic school, you were one of our instructors there as well, and we had a pretty diverse uh, different amounts of people in there that were from all kinds of systems. We had some people that were really rural, they're looking at you know, greater than an hour to get to a hospital. And then you had other folks that are from an urban system where you, know, you have two fire trucks and an ambulance on the scene in four minutes and the hospital's one mile away. And I think it was a good learning environment to be able to bounce different ideas off those different types of people. You know, But there are some things that the urban folks are never going to really interact with. They're not going to be calling a helicopter. They're not going to be doing too many intercepts. You know, If you have a level one trauma center right up the hill, you're going to miss a lot of those nuanced decision-making pieces that someone from a little bit more of an outlying area might have to do.
1: I, I would disagree only with the fact that some of the bigger urban areas, you do have some of those decisions that you have to make as far as which specialty hospital the patient is appropriate for. Not only that, but then also getting into you know, the big diversion word, which is outlawed now. Yeah. Um, but you know, they, they would go on, the different hospitals could go on, uh, you know, ICU advisory or emergency department advisory. So then it's, uh, a matter of knowing what the next closest appropriate facility is. So that definitely impacts, uh, the urban environment too. Um, but yeah, just like you said, I, and I think we all learn from one another, you know, I learned from, you know, are folks that are in rural EMS, just the same as, as they might learn from somebody that's in in uh, more of an urban setting.
0: Yeah, so you kind of touched on a little bit, but I think it's helpful for, for people who are kind of from the Vermont area. We're used to a very rigid system. It's kind of the same for the most part, whether you're, you know, going to your local hospital or you may have a couple level ones around the area. Um, when you get into the bigger systems like you touched on, if someone's having a stroke, they might go somewhere different than if they have a gunshot wound. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, prior to coming into the state of Vermont, I worked in the Denver metro area um, for a department south of Denver, and we had 12 receiving facilities in between Denver and Colorado Springs. And some of them were specialty hospitals. Some of them were level one trauma centers. And, you know, it's been, you know, 15 years or so since I've been there. So knowing what's going on there now, I, I, you know, I would just be taking guesses. But, you know, at that point in time, we had a couple different level one trauma centers. If you had a burn patient, they went to university. If you had a pediatric trauma, they went to the pediatric level one trauma center, which was Children's Hospital. Uh, limb reattachment, that went to Presbyterian St. Luke's, uh, so on and so forth. There were some that had, uh, you know, cath labs that were 24 7, other cath labs where they did PCI were you know, bankers hours, you know, nine to five was when they were staffed and the same with the stroke centers. So it really was some um, decision-making that went into where your patient went, you know, which destination was going to be the best.
0: And we talked about that a little bit, just in terms of the NREMT testing and the way that they're going to present you with those situations. I think you know, some of the different testing practices that I've gone through, they'll give you a situation, for example, they'll say, you know, your patient has severe chest pain, you know, and you notice that there's an ST elevation on your EKG, and they're going to ask you which hospital you're going to go to, you have a cardiac care center 45 minutes away, or you have a local community hospital 20 minutes away. Can you talk a little bit about how people should be thinking about those decisions? What, what should they be looking for on the patient? And then how do you ultimately decide which one to go to?
1: Well, I think what dictates it the most with the patient is the patient's stability. You know, if you have a completely unstable patient where you might be losing an airway or they might be on the verge of a cardiac arrest, you need to go to the, the closest uh, facility available. Whereas if you have a patient that maybe is having an ST elevation MI, the PCI center at the cardiac center is going to be their um, best option for destination.
0: All right, Tim. So I just want to go over some of the different types of system that people can interact with. So if you were going to interact with a government system, can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like and where you might find that?
1: Well, like a government system in the, in the setting of EMS is otherwise called, you know, might be municipal system or more commonly, it's a third service municipal. And what that is, is it's a EMS agency uh, most likely a transport agency that's run by the municipality, but it's separate from fire and police.
0: That makes sense. I think most people would be familiar with that. I know that's probably one of the systems I'm the most familiar with is that type.
1: Yeah, so uh, locally I, th- I think maybe Colchester would would fall under that category. and uh, municipal you know or third party um, or th- I'm sorry not third party third service uh, system like that could be. Uh, career or it could be volunteer or it could be a combination thereof but that's where it falls in the in the the hierarchy of the town
0: so if if the town isn't large enough to have its own ambulance service there might be services that provide more of a rural or a multi-jurisdictional response and what would you describe a rural ems system looking like
1: oh well, i mean you can have uh, several different variants in a in a rural system you know you can have a a, a Municipal agency that provides some type of automatic aid or mutual aid to a more rural system that doesn't have enough uh, volunteers funding, staffing to supply their own ambulance. You can also have a larger county-based system, which would be uh, municipal or could be a a fire-based system that provides coverage to a county in more of a, a regionalized setting.
0: Yeah. So when I first met you, I remember you had the duality of working as a career guy in an urban system, but you also did some work with a really rural system up in the northern parts of Vermont. Can you talk about what the different challenges were with those two systems?
1: Well, I think the the, the challenges we kind of already touched on as far as, you know, transport times, uh, sometimes patient acuity, um, and then access to hospitals are, are all factors in that. And the the system I worked in, it was a, uh, a private nonprofit um, that covered six municipalities.
0: So what would you be looking at for your longest response time? Like, just give us an example of going, you go far out to the outside of your district. You're still technically your first due for those of you fire in the audience. What are we looking at for an EMS response?
1: I, I don't know why you're insulting our audience. But uh, <laughs> um, as far as our response times, you know, it could be, you know, On average, 15 to 20 minutes, but going to the far reaches, uh, you know, you can push that up to 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes, and then transport to the hospital, you know, could easily be that 45 minutes to the closest medical center, and then an additional 50 minutes to the nearest, uh, you know, level one center or stroke center or PCI center.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and especially being in the rural areas, I'm sure those are a little bit more spread out than what you were talking about in Denver. It's not like you have you know a couple hospitals to choose from. You may have one specific location that, let's say, you take a bad car accident victim to. You you know where you're going just from the dispatch based on the injuries.
1: Yeah, I think you know here in northern Vermont, it's pretty much one stop shopping with uh, UVM Medical Center. <clears throat> it's our closest Level One Trauma Center. It's the you know cath lab. It's our stroke center. And it's the 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 biggest hospital, you know, the southern part of the state where you're getting into the the central part of the state. You know, they can go either um, to Dartmouth or up to UVM, you know, getting even further down into the uh, uh, southern part of the state, like towards Bennington. You know, they have the option of possibly Albany Medical Center in New York. But, you know, our options are, I would say, somewhat limited. But we do have some options.
0: Yeah, I I will tell you when I was on the Bennington Fire Department and we had any significant injury or car wreck or cardiac arrest or anything that was getting transported like that, they did go to Albany Med. And there was a lot of times we would land the helicopters right on the road just because, you know, you know, what is it, a 10, 15 minute flight or hour long drive, you know, and and it was not uncommon, you know, to pull up and have a bad wreck. And one or two companies was definitely going to be going and setting up the landing zone because we knew that was coming in.
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely. You know, in the rural setting, um, I the chances of working with a helicopter are obviously a lot more um, than in the urban setting, although I worked with more helicopters in Colorado than I ever have here.
0: Yeah, and I think part of that, too, is if you just look at the breakdown on the map— you know, the, the West coast and the central United States and those areas, they are pretty saturated with helicopters. And I can probably name the, you know, the four or five that are within an hour of us right now. It's, it's not like we have, you know, six or seven of them spread out throughout Vermont. Yeah. Well, I,
1: we didn't have six or seven. It was just, we tended to use them a lot more than, than yeah. we were doing here. And I think, you know, some of that had to do with call volume, you know, we we're, we we're on the streets a, a little bit more, but, know there's definitely a a need for them here and you know UVM HealthNet getting their helicopter and being able to do scene flights now is is phenomenal for our more rural areas in Vermont and having that asset and resource available not only for expedited transport to the hospital but you know those helicopters also bring a additional set of skills with the flight nurse and flight medics um, that you might not get with the ground-based ambulance.
0: Yeah, and that's a really good point to remember that a lot of those helicopters are operating at a level above what the street paramedics might be operating at, you know, and you unless you have some sort of critical care agreement or some sort of intercept program, you know, when you have the helicopter show up, they do have the ability to give medications and do interventions that a ground paramedic might not have the resources or training to do. And, you know, depending on how severe the injury is, you know, it might be uh, something as simple as a really complicated airway, they might have more tools in the toolbox to manage that right on the scene. And if you can get a paramedic or a flight nurse to fly there and, you know, land the helicopter and go in and perform those treatments, that might be what that patient needs the most. And, you know, the 10 minute flight as opposed to one hour drive is just a bonus.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I think, you know, they're able to get on scene and stabilize a potentially uh, unstable patient a lot quicker than uh, we have. I mean, they, they, they do have uh, access to resources that we typically don't have in the 911 setting. And uh, yeah, they're a great resource to have.
0: So let's talk a little bit about fire and police base. It's something that we're both pretty familiar with. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not really that familiar with the police base. So I'm really interested in your perspective on that. But you can talk a little bit about how fire and police base EMS is set up. Uh,
1: so just that it's it's uh, it's fire or police based EMS meaning the the local fire department or local police agency uh, runs and maintains the ambulance service uh, whereas there's not that third service involved and you know some of the advantages to that is um, you might get um, more for your dollar as far as taxes go because rather than paying for a you know, fire department a police department and an EMS department you're paying for, you know, two-thirds rather than the full thing. Uh, primarily in the United States, um, we rely on fire-based EMS. There are still a couple pocketed areas of the country. Um, I know of a few in the New Jersey area where the police agencies still run the ambulance. It doesn't mean that the the EMTs or paramedics are getting off the ambulance with a sidearm. It just means that the police agency is in charge of oversight of that ambulance. It falls underneath their umbrella. It's operated nearly identical to uh, a fire-based EMS system.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So some of my friends down in Connecticut, um, Whitney King talking about you. I know you still haven't listened to one, but I'm going to continue to give you shout-outs until you do. Um, Areas like that, a lot of them have hospital-based EMS systems, meaning that the hospitals run their own ambulance crews out. And you know, if you go down to... Um, Southern New Hampshire or Northern Massachusetts, some of those areas might not necessarily have a, a hospital-based ambulance, but they have hospital-based paramedic intercept vehicles. Can you talk a little bit about how the hospital can run EMS and what people can expect from an environment like that?
1: Yeah, so I think you you just hit on on two things that are common with hospital-based EMS. One is you know there are hospitals out there that provide the transport services. Um, there's many around the country. And uh, more commonly, at least where I grew up, uh, hospital-based EMS consisted of, uh, they call them MICU units, uh, M-I-C-U, or Mobile Intensive Care Units, which was basically a utility truck with two paramedics on it, and they would respond out alongside the volunteer EMS agencies or the career EMS agencies and provide advanced life support, ride in with the patient, and then go back in service in their own vehicle. and. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, just another way of delivering EMS.
0: Now, is that like Johnny and Roy, what you're talking about? Well, Johnny and Roy were
1: still in a fire-based system. They're relying on private EMS agencies uh, yep. and doing something similar. But, you know, with hospital-based, they, they would re- be responding out of the hospital or out of a, a quarters close to the hospital as opposed to a fire station.
0: And that makes a lot of sense too. If you can think about these things, they can all, they can all blend together. Is that right? You, it Sometimes you don't just have one system. Sometimes you might have a fire-based first response and a privatized ambulance or a hospital-based paramedic and a private BLS truck. And
1: yeah, you could have any combination of the different types of services within uh, a municipality or geographical area.
0: Yeah. I know there is one town pretty near us um, where we live where the police department, all the police members are actually trained as EMTs and first responders. They don't actually transport and they don't have an ambulance, um, you know, but they carry AEDs and first responder equipment just because of the area that they're in. It's going to take a little bit for the ambulance to get there. So the town made the decision to train those police officers who are on duty <clears throat> in that geographical area to have some basic life saving skills so they can provide those.
1: Yeah. So that would be part of what was uh, what's called a tiered response. And most oftentimes we see this with. Uh, Fire Service, where um, the Fire Service will provide a BLS or ALS uh, engine or truck company uh, or squad to the scene. Um, And then in short order, the ambulance would arrive. Now, whether that ambulance is hospital-based, municipal, um, third service, private, private nonprofit, volunteer, Doesn't really matter, but the the emphasis is on getting trained responders to the scene as quickly as possible to stabilize any
0: patient that might be uh, otherwise unstable. So, without kicking the hornets' nest, let's just lightning round here. Let's talk about what is the benefit of having a paramedic on an engine? So, a first response engine with a paramedic. What's the benefit of that?
1: Well, I could be a complete smart ass and say
0: that uh, the benefit is that they don't have to transport on every drunk call. <laughs> that makes sense, yeah, compared to having paramedics on the ambulance, because the two models we typically see are, you know, especially when you go down to, you know, Boston and that area, you're going to see double paramedic trucks and paramedic units and this, that, and the other thing. Why would you have a, why would you have like an AEMT level truck and a paramedic on an engine versus a paramedic on an ambulance?
1: I, the only reason for that is just kind of what I said is so that that medic doesn't get jammed up transporting a BLS call that doesn't need uh, an ALS transport and is free for that next call to come in. Now, if it was a if it was a perfect system, there would be a paramedic on every piece. I'll probably catch a lot of grief uh, for that statement from anybody that works with me <laughs> that's actually going to listen to this. But uh, in a perfect system, that's that's what would happen and. Uh, I did have the the privilege of working in, in such a system where every apparatus,
0: every piece in the department had a paramedic assigned to it. So that, that kind of ties into the next thing I want to talk about. So in addition to a tiered response system, you can also have like an emergency medical dispatcher or emergency medical designation where you have a call come in and the train dispatchers or the train system actually will route more critical calls to paramedic trucks. And then it will route less critical calls to BLS trucks. That way it's uh their opportunity to try to keep those paramedics as available as possible for the sickest of the sick. Have you ever worked in a system like that? Uh,
1: no, but I've been around systems that have been similar. I've never personally worked in a system that's been like that. Cause like I just said, every rig in the, in the uh, last place I worked um, had a paramedic assigned to it. Now it did there are benefits to EMD, and there, there are several benefits to it. One is triage dispatch, right? So just what you said is they're able to triage the calls over the phone and prioritize them and give them the proper resources. It's not 100%, 100% of the time, but it's, it's a pretty good system. And then the other benefit to EMD or emergency medical dispatchers, which, you know, just FYI, They go through a course very similar to what an EMT or uh, a EMT goes through as far as, um, but theirs is how to uh, provide medical care over the phone. And that's the other benefit to EMD is that they're able to talk family members, bystanders through, you know, complex stuff, uh, even, you know, CPR.
0: Yeah, I I think some of the firefighters I know from other areas of the country, they operate in an EMD system and what they have is the engine only goes to certain types of calls. So let's say someone has a stub toe and they call the ambulance. A fire truck with a paramedic is not going to respond to that. And they actually rank the different calls for the different level of acuity. And then different levels of resources show up for the different acuity level. And that has some benefits too. You want to talk a little bit about what those benefits might be? Yeah.
1: So some of the benefits uh, with that type of response system is you're not using resources that could be used elsewhere. You're not tying up uh, critical resources and then they're not available for the more pressing call. Uh, something else with uh, EMD and uh, some of the, the triage that goes along is priority dispatch and actually queuing us in on how we should be responding to some of these calls. You know, it, Does it elicit a Code 2 non-emergent response or does it elicit a, a Code 3 emergent response to the scene?
0: That's a great point. And I, I think one thing that I've always been really passionate about, especially once I became an AEMT and you find yourself always in the passenger seat and you don't really have a brake pedal, The joke, as the joke goes, is... The lights and siren are not for speed. They're for traffic if you get congested. It's just to alleviate some of the congestion on your way to the hospital. Just because you turn your lights and siren on does not mean you should be going 20 miles over the speed limit. We know for a fact, if you look at the statistical data, that that doesn't actually improve our transport time that dramatically. What it does do is it gives us the ability to get out of areas of congestion, which is where we're losing a lot of time. But that can be done slowly and safely and with due regard for the safety of others. There's nothing that drives me more nuts than, you know, with someone lane splitting or going on the, you know, the opposite side of the median with traffic coming and you're doing 20 miles over the speed limit because we know that's not going to make a huge difference. Uh, but that's the fun stuff, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> I want to go fast. Yeah. I want to go fast. Yeah. Uh yeah, everything
1: you just said is absolutely true. We don't need to be going emergent lights and sirens for a stub pinky toe. We absolutely don't. I mean, you know, the research is there that that shows it's doesn't make a difference. And there are cases where it does, and we have to know when and where to utilize the emergent response, uh, to the scene and the emergent, uh, transport to the hospital. And more often than not, we're going emergent to the scene because you don't know what you don't know to quote Lieutenant Plouffe, you know, um, we don't know what's going to happen on the scene. I've been dispatched to many calls throughout my career that come in as uh, CPR in progress. And you get there and the patient's walking around with a hurt chest because his drunk buddy just did CPR on him. Yeah. And I've been in many calls that come in as just a sick case. And you get there as the patient's uh, taking some agonal respirations and you're like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not prepared for this. Yeah. So you know, I, I can get behind the emergent response to the scene much more than the emergent trip to the hospital.
0: I think a good piece of advice I got pretty early in my career is, As you get two things happen as you get more advanced in your EMS career. I always thought this was entertaining. One, the gloves size that you wear is going to go down. They're going to get tighter because when you're an EMT and you're just kind of grabbing stuff and you're moving around, it doesn't really matter. But when you're working up as an AEMT and you're a paramedic and starting to work with medications and you're drawing things up, and I found that was true for me personally, that my gloves always get a little bit tighter as I move up through the levels um, because I need a little bit more dexterity. The other thing is that... The more advanced you are and the more knowledge and experience you have, and this could be anybody, this could be an EMT with 20 years of experience or 10 years of experience, the more experienced you are, the less you feel the, that rush and panic to use lights and sirens. You might have a little bit more understanding about that.
1: Well, to kind of even expand on that, it's the uh, the less of a rush to want to do something, right? We see a lot of our new paramedic students, they just want to treat, 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 treat. And the mark of a good paramedic isn't knowing when to do something, but it's knowing when not to do something or when you can hold back and not perform a procedure just because you can. Um, And, you know, same goes for for EMTs, especially the seasoned ones. You know, I I say it all the time. Some of the best paramedics I know are EMTs. They just choose not to be paramedics. They're smarter than you and I.
0: Yeah. Do you want the honor of talking about the karate analogy?
1: karate analogy yeah.
0: so what we always say at uh, where we work is just because you know karate doesn't mean you need to do karate oh, yeah
1: yeah absolutely
0: you know and i think that's a really great point that you're making there um, and something that i've really tried to do a good job with lately is really think about what is the best thing that's going to happen if i do this intervention and what could the worst thing be and always weigh that in my mind it comes
1: back to the risk first benefit and you know is the juice worth the squeeze right If is what I'm going to do for this patient really going to be beneficial in the 10 minutes or so I'm going to have them or could the possible side effects, untoward effects or, uh, you know, interactions with with medication or uh, possible um, complications of a procedure actually be more detrimental to the patient.
0: Yeah. And I, I think just to illustrate that a little bit in my, in my head, I always think about, you know, if you go to some, you know, little old lady and she has two out of 10 pain, Are you going to really load her up with 200 micrograms of fentanyl and snow her out to try to take care of that pain versus you go to somebody and they have a broken femur and you can see it broken and they're in excruciating pain to me? if they can manage a pain and i can i can work through other ways of helping them cope with that without going down that line of heavy doses of pain medications because we know that those are associated with risk and just because you have narcan in the bag doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to fix everything um every time you give any medicine there's always the potential for an allergic reaction a synergistic effect with another medication and especially if they haven't had it before or they haven't had it in a long time you you don't and once it's in it's in i mean with the exception of you know opiates where you can reverse with narcan but that comes with its own challenges too i mean when you give a medication you have to now manage whatever happens what good or bad
1: yeah i mean it's you you can't take it out you know and we know that you know you can't suck venom out of a snake bite (laughs) as the same thing it's kind of funny that you bring this up because this is one of the topics uh at the paramedic class today so uh, in addition to teaching for Nets, I also am faculty at the Vermont Technical College's paramedic Program. And one of the topics today was analgesia and talking about the different ways that we can alleviate patients' pain. And you know, what's often overlooked is the the simple ways that we can alleviate pain, even just by words, just by talking to your patient and distracting them from what's going on, you know, alleviate anxiety, alleviate pain, um, and really put them at, at ease. And then knowing when, like, hey, you know, that's not working, so we need to to escalate this. But, yeah, you shouldn't be snowing anybody just, just because you can.
0: And I think, like what you said a minute ago, where the best paramedics you know are EMTs, if you look at the curriculum all the way from EMR all the way up through paramedic, one of the best ways to alleviate a musculoskeletal injury still remains – Good splinting and ice packs. I've had a ton of relief in patients that have really terrible musculoskeletal injuries, and by taking away their need to support their own injury by giving them a solid splint and putting an ice pack on it and keeping it from moving and securing it, to me that that has a lot of effect on their pain. And that that there's no real risk with that, you know, as long as we're checking our CSMTs before and after, we're making sure we don't cause any harm.
1: Uh, Even that, you know, I think is overplayed in the registry, but yeah, yeah, BLS before ALS.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, you know, and like they always say in the fire service to risk a lot to save a lot, risk a little to save a little. And that translates, I think, to EMS as well too.
1: Yeah, I think so. Except the, the risk that you're dealing with is the patient safety as opposed to your own. True. True. Absolutely.
0: Well, Tim, thanks for joining us today. Hopefully those of you um, were able to learn something about systems here. Um, there'll be more on this stuff later. I'm hoping to do some MCI stuff with you later. You're kind of a pro at that. So we're really excited to hear your perspectives. I wouldn't say a pro. I've, I've just experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is honestly the best way to teach it is, is being go, going through it. And that's something that we always try to offer through NAS. We're really selective about who we pick to be instructors. We want to make sure that the people that are instructing you and teaching you have been there and done that even simple down to the CPR classes. If you haven't done CPR, you won't be teaching CPR for us to any group of people. We want to make sure that the people that are teaching you these things have done them in real life. So if you ask them questions, it's not just going to be the textbook answer. They'll They'll train you to that level, and they'll get you the information you need from the curriculum. But also, if you have a question, they can answer it because they've been there too.
1: Yeah, I think that's something we've always strived for since we you know opened our doors. Is that you know it's uh, you know real world experience from real world providers,
0: and that's honestly what makes everybody the best. You know, as they say, the best job of a senior firefighter is to make a junior firefighter into a senior firefighter, and you look at the same thing. No, the the the
1: best job I got. to Correct you there is is to make them a better firefighter than you were.
0: Yeah, true. true. I mean, you know,
1: it's there's no more uh, satisfying thing than seeing some of your former students escalate to levels far above uh, where you were. You know, I've had now EMT students that have gone on to become PAs, uh, nurse practitioners, physicians. um, And, you know, in addition to career firefighters, um, law enforcement officers, paramedics, and it's great to see them uh, exceed your expectations and rise to a level even above you
0: that's got to be really rewarding to see that happen
1: yeah most of the time other times i'm just really disappointed
0: yeah <laughs> fair enough well tim we appreciate you being here thank you so much um, as always if you have any questions you can always reach out to us um, check out netsvt.com n-e-t-s-v-t.com you can find all of our contact information here um tim thank you so much for joining us today yeah,
1: it's been good thank you Nick.